Well, as <clears throat> Pastor Hoffmeyer mentioned, we'll be back in 1 Corinthians 13 this evening. I won't go into all the reasons why I'm back there and why I've done it in the order that I've done it, but uh, that's where we are this evening. Let's uh, once again seek the face of God and then we will read through the text. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there are so many ways in which we fall short of manifesting the love that we ought to manifest, a love for you, for your Son and what he has done for us, a love for the Holy Spirit, that gracious gift of your own self to us. Forgive us then also for our love, un- lovelessness toward one another and toward others. Expand our hearts. By your word, even work in us. We would be more like our Savior. We would be more loving for the glory of his name. So please grant us your Spirit's help as we work again through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, if you would, if you haven't already, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. And this uh, particular chapter, I'm breaking up into four parts. I now have four points instead of three, as I started with. Uh, The first point, verses 1 through 3, the way love fits. Love is essential. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Secondly, we looked at verses 4 through 7, the way love acts. Love is not only essential, love is active. Love is patient, kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This evening we'll be looking at verses 8 through 13. The first section is verses 8 through 12, and entitled that, The Way Love Lasts. We've seen the way love fits, it's essential. We've seen the way love acts, it's a very active love. But now we come to the way love lasts. Love is unfailing. Follow along as I read verses 8 through 12. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, 
I did away or put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. We started this study of love because of the fact that in uh, my heart, uh, the teachings that we'd been receiving on unity in the adult Sunday school class emphasized the need for this kind of love. It's found in Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. It was also emphasized as the family has been addressed the need for love and have a love which is pleasing to God between husbands and wives and between uh, parents and children. So I took up this chapter with the determination to examine myself and, as I've been preaching it, to urge each of us to some self-examination. Say, how does this apply to me? How do I stand up to this description of love? I urged everyone to take the time to strive to memorize this particular chapter. I think uh, every husband and wife memorizing this chapter to have it in in hand when that next uh, altercation between the two of you comes up and you say, oh, okay, let's stop and think about this. Uh, How do I say this so that love is kind? How do I manifest that love does not seek its own? And so forth. And then, as I said, you know, coming to Trinity Baptist Church, I, I came to a body of believers and continue to live among you, uh, knowing you to be a body that is marked by love. I have experienced that love. I have benefited from that love. I have been overwhelmed at times with that love through the various scenes of life that we have gone through as we've been part of you. And I've seen that love, not just manifested to us, but to many others. And so I don't come here to chide and to say this congregation has got to make a radical change, but just to challenge. Can we do yet more? And as I said, we're looking at this chapter in the context that's found in 1 Corinthians as it addresses in particular uh, the members of the congregation, one for another. Now, as we come this evening to this point four, the way love lasts, I have just another little introduction because I started thinking about this thing called love and, and what, it, what it, it really is like, and we've seen its activity. But did you notice that uh, there's no object given? He doesn't say love one another. He doesn't say Love God, love Christ, just love. Love always has an object, but the object's not directly stated. And so there's a sense in which I think it it takes in, as many of the commentators point out, it takes in all of the aspects of love. Lord willing, we'll come to that at the end. But there's another very important verse, and it was recently read here from Deuteronomy chapter 6, picked up uh, in the gospel records as well, where part of the old covenant religion, that monotheistic religion that said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, went on to say, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so I began to ask the question, what does that really mean to love 
God with all of my lave, my heart, with all of my nefesh, my spirit, my soul, and with all of my ma'od, my, my greatness, my strength. How, what, what does that mean? So I take all of these things that he says here, these eight different categories, and say, okay, do I do that with my mind? Do I do that with my heart, with affections and such? And then to love your neighbor as yourself, taken from the holiness code, which we'll come to eventually in Leviticus chapter 19. Did you know that that was an Old Testament verse? Love your neighbor. Leviticus 19.18. That's what it means to be holy. It means to love your neighbor. So we come now with that aspect. Just, I just want you to feel the, the weight and the pressure and the, and the reality of this thing called love and, it's, and, it, and just how broad it is as we come now to look at how, the way love lasts. Love is unfailing. One of the most comforting characteristics of love is the fact that it does not fail. Paul makes a very emphatic statement, and we see that first in, in verse 8a. He, he ends his list of, of speaking about what love is, and he says, love never fails. Plain, straightforward statement. We know what the word never means. It means that it won't happen for all time. It won't happen even once. When Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees, have you never read? It's, 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 it's as though they had never seen that scripture before. Or when the man is said to have never walked, coming out of the womb, that, those legs never bore his body. He never walked. And so when he says never, he means something that's not supposed to happen for all time. Something that should not even happen once. And then he says it should never fail. As the New American Standard translates it, literally never fall. It should never fall. Love should never fall short. Because love doesn't give up. Love should never fall down on the job because love doesn't get disgruntled or lazy. Love should never fall off. That is, love doesn't fade over time. Love doesn't fade with age. Love should never fail, it should never fall, and it should, literally it should never fall away. That is, love should never turn aside for something else. Love never fails. Love is all the things and does all the things that Paul has described always. That's the way it's just said. That's what Paul writes. Love never fails. He doesn't say, love sometimes fails, or, or love, he just says, listen, love never fails. That's what Paul said. I'm just telling you what he said. We'll come to what that means. <laughs> so in other words, no matter how bad, how ugly, how protracted, how painful, how difficult, how complex a particular relationship becomes... Love never 
fails. Now we have, we, 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 we're, we're we should be familiar with this, right? I think the vast majority of you here are married. And so you remember what, or have been to a wedding, and so you remember those words, right, that are in some of the standard vows. I, Bart, take you, Karen, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, in love, to, ch- to love and to cherish, till I get tired, till I've had a hard week, till I've had a little bit of a problem with the children, till I can't stand the way that brother never brushes his teeth when he talks to me. No, no, no. I expanded the, the wedding vows there to the membership. I understand I just did that. But, but love never fails, it says, till death do us part. According to God's holy ordinance. Some of you will be old enough to remember the song. Tie a yellow ribbon round the old oak tree. Well, what was the, what was the point of that? Does that love last? Or has it failed as I've been away and I've been doing other things and you've lived your life here in America in my hometown. Does, is your love still there? So put a yellow ribbon around the tree if, so that I'll know when I come up whether that love has lasted. That is so important and that's what Paul emphasizes. He emphatically states, love never fails. We could put it this way. Love is timeless. One man put it this way, speaking of love and time. He said, time is too slow for those who wait, too swift for those who fear, too long for those who grieve, too short for those who rejoice, But for those who love, time is not. Time is not. Love never fails. I couldn't help but think of the fact of candy and gum and, you know, that love never failing is is, is kind of, I can illustrate it with this, this candy that never loses its flavor, right? called the everlasting gobstopper for those Willy Wonka fans, right? You pop it in your mouth and you can suck on it and suck it. It never gets smaller and never loses its flavor. It's that gum that you can chew on and doesn't just feel like rubber forever and ever and ever and ever. It actually still has some cinnamon flavor or wintergreen or spearmint or juicy fruit or whatever the flavor is. And it keeps having that flavor. It keeps on not just lasting but enduring. Love is everlasting, ever-fresh, ever-perpetual, ever-permanent, and permeates and is pervasive in everything. Albert Barnes was probably my favorite commentator at this particular part of Corinthians. He had some very helpful things to say. He said, love will always abide, may be always exercised, is adapted to all circumstances and to all worlds in which we may be placed or in which we may dwell. Love never fails. There's Paul's emphatic statement. Well then, what's Paul's point? 
Well, he gives us that point in verses 8 through 10. In verses 8 through 10, Paul tells us that we are to prize love over spiritual gifts. That's his main point that he's making to the people there in Corinth. Prize love, value love more than spiritual gifts. Remember that Paul has written this chapter to a group of people who have, are marked by all kinds of pride and self-centeredness and self-promotion. And so they've taken these spiritual gifts, which they were richly blessed with, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 5 and 6, and they have an abundance of these gifts, and they were using them for their own promotion. Look, I have all these tongues and the way that I can speak, and look, and I can prophesy, prophesy and look, I have knowledge that doesn't come by natural means, but by supernatural means, and they were using this and saying, look at me. Paul emphasizes in this particular section the revelatory spiritual gifts that were prized and boasted in. Prophecy, the receiving of direct revelation from God and then speaking it on God's behalf, whether it's seeing the future and describing it or whether it's declaring God's commands. Tongues, that speaking in a language supernaturally received from God, from God a language that was not learned by ordinary means, and they were using this. And, and then this knowledge, oh man, they had a, a peculiar corner, some of them with the gift of knowledge, on knowledge about individuals or circumstances or whatever that knowledge was. Again, supernaturally given. But Paul goes on to say, if you look at the verses with me, Verse 8b, but if there are gifts of prophecy, literally if there are prophecies, they will be done away. If tongues, they will cease. And if knowledge, it will be done away. And so he just emphasizes the fact that these things are going to be no longer operative. These things are going to be no longer applicable. These things will no longer exist for value or benefit to God's people. There is coming a time when they will be put away, abolished, or will just come complete cessation without any need anymore. That's what the words mean when he says that they will pass away or they will cease. They were a means for a time in which they validated, in which they highlighted, here's a true messenger of Jesus Christ, or this is the message that Christ was speaking, and it's valid, and these miraculous gifts were used to further that understanding of who Christ was and what his work was. But Paul tells us, as important as, important as these are, they're partial. That's how he said that over and over again. They're, they're partial. He says... Goes on to say in verse 9, For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. We know in part and we prophesy in part. He says, Not only are these things temporary and they're going to pass away, but they're also just partial. Now, think about it for a minute. These are important gifts. This is how God spoke to his people, in part, during that first century. And Paul comes along and says, they're not the whole deal. 
they're just a part. Matter of fact, knowledge and prophecy are just partial. Now, being partial is not bad. You know, um, it's kind of like being partly pregnant. You're pregnant. <laughs> no, you haven't got a baby yet, but you're pregnant. It's a, well, so it's, it's not a bad thing to be partial, and that, that's not the point. He's not trying to say it's bad. It's just saying it's limited. Again, Barnes, our knowledge here is imperfect and obscure. And there he's talking about the word uh, enigmatic or, or uh, seeing a mirror dimly from the later verse. But he says what we, the knowledge that we have here is imperfect or obscure. Same thing with the prophetic gift. Barnes says it is imperfect. It is indistinct. It compared, that is compared with the full view of truth in heaven. It is obscure, and all that is imparted by the gift will soon become dim and lost in the superior brightness and glory of the heavenly world. These gifts, as they were given, came infrequently. They didn't necessarily come when you wanted them most. You had to wait for God to give a prophecy or knowledge. These things were only a part of a whole. Imagine a you know, puzzle. You've got a 1,500-piece puzzle there on a table, and you're putting it together. And over in this corner, you've got this beautiful garden, and, and you complete the garden. You say, man, it's a beautiful garden. But it's not the whole puzzle. And every piece is just another little piece of the whole picture. And he says, that's what this prophecy is. That's what this knowledge These are just partial pieces, little pieces in a much bigger much clearer truth. And in fact, they are at times, these prophecies and words of knowledge are at times rare and obscure, challenging at least to grasp and understand. So if they're just partial and they're going to pass away, the question becomes when? Right? When is that going to happen? Well, he tells us, kind of. <laughs> he says, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. The partial, these magnificent revelatory gifts will pass away. They will reach their expiration date. When the perfect comes. Now what's the perfect? Well, the word perfect here can be translated a number of different ways. Mature, the end, the goal, the completion. Well, still doesn't tell us what it is. Well, there are two basic understandings that I've come across as to what it means or what it could mean. Some understand this to speak of the completion of God's revelatory work because he's talking about the revelatory gifts of prophecy and, and knowledge and even tongues earlier. And so some say, you see, what's complete here is the complete revelation. God has completed his revelation to mankind and they now have it. And so therefore these things have passed away. They passed away with the apostles. After the apostles had written those Books that became our scriptures. And when the Bible was completed, they say, therefore, the completion has come and the partial revelatory gifts are no longer needed. Cessationists often or sometimes refer to this passage to prove their point. Others, and most of those that I read from my uh, study, uh, actually understand it to refer to Christ's return and the eternal state. 
Notice verse 12. In verse 12 it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. And so when are we going to know in, in full? And when, when are we going to see Christ face to face? Well, at the second coming. And then on into eternity in heaven. When we will no longer walk by faith, but we will walk by sight. And what we appear to be or what we know to be now will become clearer. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. And so the perfect here speaks of that return of Christ, in which there will be such a, a, a fullness of revelation that will come to us, that the bright light of that revelation will, will make everything that we thought we knew up to this point look small. As true as it might be. And maybe it's a little bit of both. So maybe it's with the coming of the scriptures, there's this starting of a passing away, and then it's going to be utterly obliterated, if you will, when Christ returns. But whether this is the full revelation contained in scripture or the fullest revelation at the return of Christ, Paul's point is this, these gifts which the Corinthians prized and boasted in are passing away. They're passing away. They are just a small part of a far vaster, greater whole. Albert Barnes put it this way, All knowledge which we now, which we now possess, valuable as it is, will be obscured and lost and rendered comparatively valueless in the fuller splendor of the eternal world as the feeble light of the stars, beautiful and valuable as it is, vanishes or is lost in the splendor of the rising sun. The knowledge which we now have is valuable as the gift of prophecy is valuable, but it will be lost in the brighter visions of the world above. In that future world, we shall know distinctly and clearly. And then the knowledge which we now possess will appear so dim or obscure, and it will seem to have vanished away and disappeared. And I love this imagery, as a dim candle dies at noon. I like that imagery because the candle's still giving light. It just has been utterly overshadowed by everything else. Paul wants them to understand. You're, 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 you're grabbing onto something that's passing away. What are you hanging on to these things for? For something better. And then he illustrates it for us. He wants us to understand this. And so this is the only point he really takes time to more fully illustrate. And so he gives us two illustrations of how this, these gifts are passing away. And that's how we ought to prize love more than these things. Paul's two illustrations. He speaks of childhood versus going into manhood. And he speaks of looking at a mirror dimly. 
Look at verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away, same word as pass away earlier, or be done away with. He says, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. He uses himself as an illustration, but it's just an illustration from childhood to adulthood, from immaturity to maturity. What the child knew when they were young was true, but they had such a small grasp of it. They really didn't know very much. It was all true what they grasped, but they had so little. It was such an immature, obscure knowledge of the truth. The partial character of the gifts does not have to do with something defective in the gifts, and I think this is important. It's not that the revelatory gifts were defective in themselves. It wasn't that the knowledge that was given or the truth that was given was somehow defective. What was defective, what was limited, was the ability for people to grasp it and the way in which it came. So they couldn't grasp it. They were children. And so as immature children, they needed these particular means to help them to grasp the truth. Um... I know I've had oftentimes mentioned that I have a uh, patron saint uh, by the name of Dale Ralph Davis. Uh, well, I think Pastor uh, Shazad has a patron saint by the name of Jackman. I'm going to quote from Jackman's commentary on 1 Corinthians as well, because again, he captured this very well. He says, Paul is saying that however much we may mature in Christian character and behavior in this life, as indeed we should, yet at best, it will, only, it will be only a childhood compared with the full adult states of complete maturity in heaven. Children are in process, in transit to adulthood. And while the figure of Peter Pan, the boy who never grew up, has some attraction in a fairy tale, in real life its equivalent would be an unmitigated tragedy. There's one particular girl who is absolutely cuteness incarnate. And we're delighting in that period of time with that cuteness of Ava. But six months from now, or a year from now, I don't want to see that same cuteness. Because that would be no growth, no progress. That would be bad. So it is with us. Yes, we have in part, they had in part, but we got to go beyond that. There's so much more to gain. And then he says, he adds to that another image, so it's this immaturity to maturity. That's the way these gifts are passing, and we're going from being immature in the way we understand truth to a, a fuller maturity where we'll understand truth and the way that it impacts us. But then verse 12, he says, for we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I am, just as I have been fully known. His second imagery is that of a mirror or a glass into which or through which either he sees a reflection or he sees something beyond it. And it's a specific, it represents the means of revelation that are suited to their particular state. 
in that infancy, they needed these things. And we have to be careful. Again, people say, well, the mirror was really bad and rough. And uh, be careful because then you're saying God's revelation and his means of revelation are bad. And that's not what's being said here. What's being said here is that looking in those means, using those very God-given means, we still could only know in part, we could only know dimly, we could only know in almost a riddle form, in an enigma. So the problem is with human limitations. But God gave gifts suited to those specific limitations. And so we need to continually grow. Well, what's Paul's meaning in all this? Let me just summarize this particular point. Love, by, by again quoting uh, another man, he says, Love is the best thing in the world and the thing that lives the longest. Albert Barnes says, The argument is that we ought not to seek so anxiously that which is so imperfect and obscure and which must soon vanish away, but we should rather seek that love which is permanent, expanding, and eternal. The way love lasts. These things are going to pass away, these things that you thought so important, but love will last. Love never fails. Then his final point, Paul's final point is verse 13, in which he says, says, the way love excels. Love is excellent. But now, abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I'm going to be very brief at this particular point because I agree with one particular commentary where he said, you know what? Paul doesn't elaborate. He just states it. Three great graces, faith, hope, and love. Which would have you chosen to be the greatest? Faith, by which we are saved? Hope, by which we persevere? For whatever reason, Paul says love. And I could wax eloquent if I had more time why that might be the case. Certainly it is something which endures, and I think probably the most, I think the clearest point is this, love is the one of those, the only one of those three characteristics that is an attribute of God, and by which we reflect the character of God. I gotta, I'll be honest with you. I've read 1 Corinthians 13, most of my life. I pretty much check out after 8A. Because after 8A, I've, I've already been warned about what if I don't love and do these things? And those are frightening words to me, and I keep coming back to those words to challenge me. And yet, in verses 4 through 7, and maybe 8A, love never fails, then I've got all that wonderful picture, and I spend a lot of time mulling around, and then I just kind of check out. The rest is just, okay, that's some nice, some nice stuff. But the rest is not just night nice stuff. The rest is still designed, brethren, to help us pursue love. Paul is still after this one point. 
In chapter 12, he ends by saying, but I want to show you a more excellent, still more excellent way. And that more excellent way is love. And then he starts chapter 14 in verse 1 with, pursue love. Track down love. So all that Paul's done in these verses, we get caught up on, well, is that about the revelation of God or is that the second coming of Christ? And are we talking about gifts and prophecy going on forever? And what's this mirror is that I'm looking at? And what's this child? And we get all caught up. And those are good things to meditate on. But if we lose the fact that he's trying to motivate us to love, we've missed the point what Paul's making. And it's so easy to get lost in that. But the point is this, do you highly value love? He has sought to promote love by warning. He has sought to promote love by exhortation in the form of a, a, an, a, a perfect picture of love. He has tried now to motivate us by comparing love to these things that are part of this world that are passing away. He elevates love. Love excels even faith and hope in this particular context. He lifts it up and says, look at this. Pursue this. Do you highly value love? Do you highly value love more than spectacular corporate gifts which are temporary and partial? Do you value love more than great preachers? This is another reason, as I thought about this, brother, this is another reason why it's far more important that each of us listen to the preaching of our pastors more than the preaching of men on the internet. Because as powerful as they might be, they don't love you. They won't weep as they speak about the salvation of your children. They won't go home and weep because they didn't get it out the way they hoped you might best benefit from it. They have no idea who you are. Now, they might very well benefit you, and I'm not saying you can't ever listen to anybody on the Internet, but do you value love from a man who is a faithful man who loves you, who may have a lot less education and a lot less eloquence and a lot less power than the preachers on the radio that have hundreds of thousands of hits. But do you, do you appreciate love and value love higher than great gift? Do you appreciate love and value love higher than exhilarating personal spiritual experience, like speaking even like they were speaking in tongues, and oh, what a spiritual experience. And Paul's going to say, did that edify anybody? What's that? But we get caught up in this, whoo! 
Woo! That, whoa, man, that made me feel good. That was really... And it's, well, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that going to make you more loving? Is your love unfailing? Husbands, does your wife know your love is unfailing? Does she know that however many crow's feet there might be, however much change she might undergo, you're not looking anywhere else because your love never drops off, never wanes. Ladies, does your husband know that? about your love. And brethren, does, do the brethren sitting around you know that your love is unfailing? Can they tell by your actions, by your words, that you're there for them? I challenge you to think through the church directory and find that particular person that you have the hardest time loving. Now, I'm not saying, again, by saying this, I'm not saying all the relationships should be equally intimate and equally passionate across the board. That's not going to happen. Right? That's not what I'm saying. But there ought to be love for everybody that's a part of this body. And if you have a problem loving somebody, then that's the person I think where you need to take up and start praying. Help me to show love to that person. Help me to manifest love to her, to him, to them. Don't take this out and go say, well, well, I'm sitting back and waiting for everybody to love me. When they meet my standard for what I feel like love ought to be toward me, then I'll know this is a loving... No, 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 no. Amen. You go love them. Oh, brethren, I just got to end by saying how impossible this is. Man, just give it up. You're going to do this on your own. Just give it up. There is no way, no how... Anybody can love this way and never fail. And that's why we need Christ. Because we are going to fail and we need forgiveness from our Savior. And we are going to fail and we're going to need grace from our Savior to get up and love one another as we ought to. And we're going to need our Savior who loves us this way. Whose love never fails. However ugly you get. His love never fails. What a Savior. And my friend, if you're looking for satisfaction, if you're looking for anything of love and anything short of the perfect love of God in Christ Jesus, it's passing away. And anything you love in this world and the things of this world, they're passing away away. And so will you if you're clinging to them. So cling to Christ and turn from your false loves and know what it is to be safe in the arms of the Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, be gracious to write your word upon our hearts and do more than that. Press it upon our conscience. Work it into our wills work into our affections, get a hold of our minds that we will love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we will love our neighbor as ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.